Hello again. Welcome back to Pablo's channel. And we're going to we're up to chapter five of a history of Wirral, uh, and it's called Early Early Modern Wirral. And now we're going to go from fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred. So we're getting nearer to now. Yeah, so I'm still in my lounge. It's just gone past midnight, so we've just hit the 15th of January. And I've got still Philip Glass playing in the background on my uh, smart TV. And yeah, well, just a little diary thing. Uh, recently, there's been a bit of an upheaval for Uncle Dario. He um, unfortunately had an issue with had to um, being told he's had to pay uh, a lot of money in his job and he can't afford it and he's in the process of getting lawyers to try and fight back these payments he can't afford and and whether he's got to pay them so yeah and the family Rico have been all getting together and seeing what they can do to help so we had a little uh, video a chat with Marisha about to get some clarity uh, they had a chat yesterday with Saul, Daniel and Dad, I was too tired to chat, and um, it was, there was a bit of confusion the way he communicated about it, but Mauricio cleared it up a bit. He's good at speaking English and Spanish, luckily, so he, uh, he's a, a good medium, a good translator. Anyway, there you go, a bit of uh, local information there for the public to listen to, but I'm here to continue reading A History of Will. Um, early modern will. So I'm going to read introduction first. The beginnings of modernity. Um, so, introduction. The beginning of modernity. After defeating Richard III at the Battle of Bodworth in 1485, Henry Tudor became king. He was regarded as England's first modern monarch, uh, but it, it was the reign of his second son, Henry VIII, between 1509 and 1547, which transformed English society. He was remarkably similar to the monarch whose reign began the last chapter. He showed the same desire to know, to control and to exploit his kingdom. He changed the country's religion and reformed its local and national government. Feudalism disappeared and England became a nation-state. The other Tudor monarchs and the Stuarts who succeeded them after 1603 had to cope with the consequences of the great religious, economic and social forces which Henry had largely unwittingly stirred up. This chapter attempts to explore the ways in which the people of Will were affected by these great changes, as well as generally to discuss developments in the local economy and landscape. So, part one. End of the monasteries and change and continuity in local government. When, during the 1530s, the once powerful monasteries of Will were suddenly dissolved, Everybody felt the effects. The government was 
the government confiscated all monastic lands and properties and then sold them to secular landlords. Birkenhead Priory was in government hands until until 1545 when it was sold to Ralph Worsley of Lancashire and described as a house and site church, belfry, uh, churchyard, house, edifices, mills, barns, yards, a dove house, mill, fish yards, two acres of meadow, 78 acres of arable, a parcel of land where flax used to grow, hag, uh, that's H-A-G-G-E, hag coppice, bidston and wallace. We can imagine how these assets would have boosted Worsley's prosperity and prestige. Space will not allow a description of every post-dissolution um, land transfer, but suffice it to say that some existing gentry families were able to increase their holdings and that certain newcomers were able to gain foothold in Wirral for the first time. For example, in December, 14, sorry, in December 1548, John Grice sold the manor of Bromborough to a member of an important gentry family, Sir Roland Stanley of Houghton. The relevant document listed all lands, tenements, and medos, M E D O S E, also Fabarge and Panarge of one wood called Willerice and one lease or D E I D E indented, made for term for L X. One, that's numeral, numerals LX and I. Uh, Ures, presently enduring by Thomas, late abbot of the later dissolved monastery of Chester. The tiny township of Hoos had emerged as coastal grazing land between Little and Great Mills. Its story is a fascinating example of how monastic land downship has influenced the modern landscape. It had become the property of Basingwork Abbey, upon whose dissolution it was passed to the crown, where it remained until 1579, when two citizens of London, Edmund Downing, Downing with a Y N G at the end, and John Walker, bought it. They must have viewed it as a little investment, but certainly never lived there. Subsequently, their tenant, Ralph Proby, uh, P-R-O-B-Y, bought it and then in 1585 sold it in two lots to Miles Fells and John Roberts. Hoos's neighbouring manor continued to be the property of sole landlords. Being so small, Hoos seems not to have been viable as a manor and was gradually divided into many more smaller plots, which were purchased by lower class but prosperous people, such as the fisherman John Eccles. By the 19th century, when Hoylake began to grow due to fishing and then to the rail link with Liverpool, Hoos was developed as a working class residential area. This had not occurred in the neighbouring Great and Little Meld because their lands had not been divided into smaller plots as such at an early date. They remained largely agricultural villages until the late 19th and early 20th centuries when they were developed as much more middle class neighbourhoods for commuters to Liverpool. Thus today we see that the area of densest housing in Hoylake lies between Dens Hay and Alder Alderley Roads. The old boundaries of Hoos 
which were in turn the product of both monastic landholding and post-dissolution land deals. Documentation from the dissolved monasteries is rare, but there is the inventory of goods found at the cell at Stanlaw in 1537. It contains important details about the old monastic life. There are numerous religious clothes and artefacts, including a vestment of red silk baldachin with all things, things, T-H-Y-N-G-E-S, there unto belonging for the priest, I think it's Old English now, an altar table of alabaster with a blue cloth hanging before the same, an O image of Our Lady of Grace, all gilt with plates of silver upon the F and egg pens nailed about the tabernacle. The latter reference is to the pe- is to pennies which had been struck had been stuck to the image as offerings, and is an example of the kind of idolatry and superstition superstition superstitions like uh, which Protestants were so keen to expunge from the life of the church. A list of agricultural property follows on. Um, Hmm. Item Cattel, Roman numeral 20, uh, 22. Hmm, I will read that bit. It's a bit weird. Okay. It is evidence that local farming was mixed, based on both the rearing of animals and on the growing of crops. Additionally, the crops themselves were typical of those which were grown in the will, right up to the 18th century. The three named men who were claiming these goods were probably either former monastic tenants or employees. The document finishes by telling us that William Whittell was admitted to the possession, custody uh, and keeping of the said cell with the appurtenuses and all the goods and cattle uh, aforesaid to the king's use until the king's pleasure be further unknown. They've written this in Old English, and that's why I'm stuttering a bit. He was clearly acting as an interim estate manager until the properties were sold off. It was perhaps the beginning of Wattel's new life as a secular tenant farmer with prospects of raising his status and for increasing his wealth. In this respect, he is representative of many people in England at that time. We've got a picture here of the medieval parishes of Wirral which were in existence by the time that parish registers were coming into use in the 16th and 17th centuries. So, yeah. Cut to mention of New Brighton there, then. The exact fate of every single former monk is unknown. But the few details which have survived indicate that they were not as badly off as we often like to imagine. All the brethren were given pensions. John Sharp, the last prior of Birkenhead, got an annual pension of £12 and died and nested in 1543. Others found employment as clergymen in parish churches. John Gostelow was a former monk from St. Werberg's Castle, and that Werberg's Abbey, who became rector of Wallasey in 1549. He received an annual pension of £5 and was buried in Wallasey in January 1580. He was served by two other former monks, Thomas Tassie from Birkenhead, uh, Birkenhead Priory, who was described as a chaplain 
1549, and who died in 1582, age 75. And John Bird, an ex-friar from Chester, who between 1548 and 1554 was described as a curate of curate of Wallace. Brothers from old Cheshire houses found employment in Wirral. William Wright came from Vale Royal Abbey and was rector of Woodchurch between 1549 and 1571. And William the Cunchen came from Greyfriars in Chester and was clerk in Heswall in 1542. Traditional monastic skills often enabled former monks to gain secular employment, thus the Corporation of Liverpool account books for 1541 mentioned the payment of shillings to a monk of Burkett for bindage of bindage of boak <laughs> language again. Details about the dissolution of the Hillbury cell are fascinating. In 1575 de depositions were taken from the pe local people concerning the practices of the former monks. John Dial, uh, age 70, of West Kirby said he remembered how the two monks of the cell used to say services in the chapel uh, and to catch herring and other fish from the boat. John Brassier of Tiverton said that 45 years earlier he had been one of the boys of the chamber and had known the last monks, Robert Harden and John Smith. The latter said that he had gone, on, gone to live on Hillbury some 50 years previously and had stayed there for 14 years. His uncle, John Smith, had been a monk. He said that their fishing boat was called the Jack Rice. No monks had paid tithes to the rector of West Kirby. The last monk was called Robert Wigan, also known as Wigham, Harden or Hallwarden. He was well off. His will, which was proved in 1550, and in which he is described as a clerk of Hilby, mentions a boat called the Michael of Hilby which he left along with an ambling filly to Edward Smarley, a sailing boat called a counter, which he left at Mr. Rowland Stanley Esquire, and a red heifer, heifer, yeah, heifer that uh, goeth upon the land to Alice Davy. He had been in receipt of an annual pension of six pounds. Such retrospective insights into the internal life and the local effects of monastery are rare but they do convey a poignant sense of an end of an era. When we look at the ways in which local government was being reformed, we see an important feature of the succeeding era. In 1536, the government observed that Cheshire still had a reputation for lawlessness by reason that common justice had not been indifferently ministered there, like, ministered there like and in such form as in other places in the realm. An act was therefore passed which gave the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Keeper the right to appoint justices of the peace. They were to be people with local knowledge who were to administer the law in an impartial and responsible fashion and to be accountable to central government. In order to deal regularly with all matters of civil order and to enable maximum attendance, the courts or court sessions were to meet four times a year in Chester, Nantwich, Northwich and Nutford. On the other hand, things were now very different to what they had been during the Middle Ages. Cheshire's isolation and the ability of certain people to exploit local government for their own benefit had been removed. 
but on the other hand, the justice of the peace came mainly from the gentry. By the middle of the 16th century, local government in Wirral had become more efficient. The society was still richly hierarchical. The gentry were still in charge. A list of gentry made in 1578 tells us the names of the most powerful families in early modern Wirral. That was Sir Roland Stanley Esquire, 1517-1614 in Hooton, John Poole Esquire, 1524-1613 Poole, William Massey Esquire, that's 1516-1579 Puddington, John Whitmore Esquire, 1539 Faston, Robert Fletcher Esquire of Morley and Chester, Will Estates Unknown, John Hockenhall Esquire, 1540 to 1590, Prenton. Thomas Bunbury, Esquire, 1542 to 1601, Stanny. Richard Hugh, Hugh Esquire, uh, died in 1574, Thornton, Hugh, and Layton. Edward Stanley, uh, Poulton, Spittle. William Clegg, with a G, uh, died 1629, Gayton. Robert Parr, 1555 to 1582, Batford. Peter Bold, died 1605, Upton. John Mells Gent, 1531 to 1592, Mells. Thomas Doe, Sorgo. Um, Richard Shepherd, Greasby. William Bennett, 1506 90, Carnesdale, Barnsley. William Prenton, Heswall. John Will, BA, either Heswall or Ledstrom. Richard Linacre, Grange, West Kirby, Edward Burgess, Easton, John Martin, Sorgo Massey, Edward Swallow, Henry Glover, Easton, John Young, Young uh -huh, um, with an E at the end, Neston, Edward Delamere, Thingwall, Robert Radcliffe, Greasby, Richard Coventry, Newhouse and Newton, West Kirby. Notice that the list describes hierarchy. Unsurprisingly, a Stanley is at the top. By this time, the family had effectively become noble. In fact, as a result of strategic marriages, their main interests were now in Lancashire. The seven persons beneath Sir Roland were officially described as gentry by virtue of their titles. But those below them could just as easily be, be described as yeomen. They did not have titles but qualified for inclusion on the list by virtue of their property, manners and dress. It is a good introduction to the names of Wirral's most influential families. I'm going to continue on to part two, people, names and places. Just as William I's obsession with information about his property created the most useful local historical source of the Middle Ages, Henry VIII's desire both to know and to exploit his kingdom led to the most comprehensive list of local residents until the national censuses of the 19th century. It was carried out in 1545 and is called the Subsidy Roll. It reveals much detail about the people of Wirral at the beginning of the early modern age and bears the names of Wirral households who own property to the value of at least 20 shillings and were thus eligible for taxation at a flat rate of a penny in the, pound, in the pound. This low financial qualification for the tax implies that most householders in Wirral probably owned property of at least this value, 
and therefore would have been listed. 60 of Wirral's townships are mentioned, and 9 missed out. Arrow, Blacken, Heswall, Hooton, Pendlebury, Great and Little Sutton, Childer Thornton and Woodbank. We're able to compute approximate size of population by multiplying the number of heads of household by 5, giving us the figures which are laid out in tables 4 and 5 on page 98. So yeah, table 4, the largest townships of Will in 1545. Township Great Neston, heads of house 37, approximate population 185. Burton, uh, heads of household 33, approximate population 165. Wallasey, 28, approximate population 140. Tranmere, 26, approximate uh, population, 130. Liscard, heads of household, 25, approximate population, 125. Township Shotwick, heads of household, 21, approximate population, 105. And then Township uh, Eastern, 20, approximate population, 100. Then Table 5, the smallest townships of women in 1545. Um, they had uh, so Neverpool heads of household one population population five Mollington Banastray uh, heads of household two population population ten Croton Croton C R O U G H T O N two population population ten Great Stanny heads of household two population population ten Not Torum Heads of household three, approximate population fifteen. Crabwall, uh, heads of household four, approximate population twenty. Thingwall, heads of household four, approximate population twenty. Woodchurch, heads of household five, and approximate population twenty-five. The figures are approximations. Naturally, some populations appear great because the townships themselves are large. Shotwick had the highest population density, about 19 people per 100 acres. West Kirby had a population of about 70, but a density of about 15, 15 people per 100 acres, making it the second most populous district in Willow. Great Neston and Liscard had the same population density of about 13 people per 100 acres, while Tranmere had about 12 people per 100 acres. Eastham had 11 people per 100 acres, whilst Burton and Wallasey had about 9 each, making their population densities uh, a little above average for the 100. Clearly, in the cases of West Kirby, Neston and Shotwick, maritime trade along the D estuary was the main cause of their relative prosperity and ability to sustain larger populations. The apparent importance of the other townships should not be exaggerated, but is generally due to relative soil qualities and the suitability of sites for settlement. This can be seen in the cases of Wallasey and Liscard, where there are good sandstone outcrops upon which to build, a mixture of sandy soils and clay and a mild local climate. According to the rolls, there were 770 heads of households in Wirral, implying a possible total of 3,850 people. If we say that the population of each of the missing townships was 11, they come to the average of the whole of the world. This gives us a further 440 people 
and a grand total of 4,290. Modern Wimble has villages, e.g. Greasby, Irby and Pensby, with larger populations than that. We can again remind we are again reminded that the land was comparatively empty. Population figures are interesting, but impersonal. Most of us will, in fact, peruse the subsidy rolls in pursuit of ancestral names, especially as they offer the chance of pushing back a lineage beyond the commencement of most extant parish registers. In our quest for the next generation, do we perceive the value of all those other surnames which we impatiently discard like severed foliage from the trail we are hacking through the archival jungle? Surname, surnames are like little envelopes containing bequests from previous generations, which we have dismissed as being too insignificant to be opened. In one sense, we are right. If you open your envelope, you will only find that your surname was probably acquired by some anonymous medieval ancestor who began to find it necessary to distinguish himself from his neighbours by acquiring an extra title that this title would come from one of four categories. A nickname, relationship name, an occupation name, or a place name. But consider the possibilities, uh, but consider the possibility of extending our understanding of the origins of rural people in the 16th century if we pile up all the envelopes from the subsidy rolls, open them up, study them, list and categorise them, and use them to test out our preconceptions and our pet theories about Wibble's past. One of the most vehemently held beliefs about Wibble's past is that the district has contained an isolated population. It is, after all, a semi-island. The Irish Sea and the rivers Dee and Mersey have acted as deterrents to both immigration and immigration. It is thought that people simply could not travel either outwards or inwards until the Mersey ferries became steam-powered in the early 19th century. The raging waters of the mighty Mersey are regarded with a particular awe and that famous river has acted as a boundary between Cheshire and Lancashire for over a thousand years. Indeed, Mersey means boundary river. It is believed, therefore, that the people of early modern women must have been uniformly descended from the people who had settled there some 20 or 30 generations previously, during the early Middle or Dark Ages. If there was any dilution of this ancient family, it would only be due to immigration from, at the first, other parts of Cheshire. The contents of our pile of envelopes tell us a different story. Now for the surnames, which are also place names. During the Middle Ages, as the population grew and became more mobile, those who moved away from their native villages and registered themselves in new ones acquired surnames in order to ease identification. Often the most obvious surname for a clerk to bestow upon a peasant would be the name of his home village. Thus a man who moved into Newton might become known as John the Newton, and D would eventually be dropped and future generations would bear the same name. Doubtless, it would not be many generations before John's descendants would cease to know or even care about the origins of their family name, but of one thing we can be sure, at some point, sometime in the middle of the Middle Ages, one of their ancestors must have moved from a village called Newton to somewhere else. 
Newton is one of the most common names in England, and so we are unable to be sure about the precise medieval origins of modern bearers of the name. Other names are, however, singular. For example, there is only one Burskow, Burskow in Britain. It is in southwest Lancashire, as are Scarisbrick and Sefton. We can say of each bearer of these names that at some stage in the Middle Ages, one of their ancestors who lived in those villages moved away and settled somewhere else. There are 298 surnames listed on the Wirral subsidy rolls for 1545. 80 of these are identifiable place names. Remarkably, 40 of the 80, or 50% of them, or 32 if we withdraw the ambiguous and doubtful ones, making 40%, are from Lancashire. They constitute the largest category and appear in Table 6 on page 100. Have a look at uh, table six. So yeah, table six. Lancashire place names appearing on Wirral surnames in 1545. So we have surname, Lancashire place names in modern form, and then Wirral townships in which they appeared in sur as surnames in, in 1545. So one is Anglehard, Inglesard. Lancashire place name is Anglesard. And then Wirral Township, in which they appear in names, is Eastern. So, yeah. Getting really into the place names now, aren't we? Um, okay. Let's have a look. So, let's look at the pages here. I won't go through these tables because they're quite dense really. I've got Sefton here as a surname. No Lancashire place names, but uh, but then Wirral Townships in which they appear surnames is Burton, Mollington, Tarrant, Puddington, Stoke, Whitby. Anyway, um, where are we? It would be mischievous to project the proportional Lancashire place names within the geographical surname category onto the other three surname categories, i.e. descriptive or nicknames and occupation and relationship names, and thereby assert that some 50% of Wirral heads of households must either have come from or were descended from um, people who have moved to Wirral from Lancashire. Because, of course, location names were by their very nature, only bestowed upon people who moved away from home, and the numbers of other sorts of name being bestowed upon immigrants would consequently be proportionally smaller. But surely the least we are able to say is that between 12 and 40% of world people in the 16th century were so descended. It is reasonable to suggest that our estimate should be nearer the top than the bottom of the range. A brief survey of several smaller documents from the same period, printed in rural notes and queries, yields further examples of Lancashire place names acting as rural surnames. Robert Halstead, Halstead appears on a Brimstage rent roll of 1557. The Liverland family have flourished in Wallasey since the Middle Ages, and the William Formby, that's F-O-R-M-B-I-E, Formby, appears on the will. 
which was proved in 1605 of John Penketh of Burkett, alias Burkend. Burkend. Burkend, yeah, Burkend. The same documents also produced many repeats of the names on the tables. We've got like a little dash here saying, it would be unsafe to assert that these three were definitely Lancashire surnames due to their frequency as place names throughout England, including Cheshire, i.e. Ashton-upon-Mersey, Great Barrow, Bridge and Mickle Trafford, but there are no examples of these place names in Wirral. These place names are also common throughout England, including examples in Wirral, i.e. Newton-cum-Larton near West Kirby and Lee in the parish of Backford. Tables 7 to 9 show the other identical place names which acted as surnames for Wirral people. So yeah, uh, Cheshire place names from outside Wirral appearing in Wirral surnames. So we've got Barrow, place name, Great Barrow, Wirral Township, Monton Tarrant. We've got then uh, Bradderton, uh, and that goes into place name, modern form, Bartonton, uh, Wirral Township, Easton. Delamore Del into Delamere and then into Thingwall. Yeah. Five surnames are not synonymous with geographical locations, but give a very good idea of their bearers' ancestral origins. Irishman, Great Neston, and Welshman, Overpool, speak for themselves. The other three are Welsh surnames. At Itchel Burton means son of Itchel. And more familiar is the anglicised form, Bithel, Anion, recorded as Crabwall, Ledsham, Neston and Puddington, and often written as Inion or Onion, comes from the Old Welsh Inion, and ultimately the Latin Anion, Anios, the name don't transcribe as Benin, Clawton, is probably Benion, the anglicised form of Ap Enion. There are 12 unidentified names which resemble place names, but whose locations or meanings have not yet been discovered. Bachdale, Borley, Danham, Daneham, sorry, Dunsterfield, Godelston, Gittel, Swinley, Whaley and Yoxton. For the purpose of this study, they have not been included in the place name categories of surnames. So we've got uh, Will place names appearing in Will surnames. So uh, what Brumber, Brumber, and then uh, Tranmere, uh, Greasby, uh, G R E V E S B Y, Greasby, and then Great, Great Neston, Irby, that's I R R E B Y, and place name Irby, that's near Will Township is Morton. Wirral, W-I-R-R-E, Hall, and then Wirral, and then Brim Stage is the township. These two have been included in Table 6. Table 9, other place names appearing as Wirral surnames for now. Um, Ireland is an I-R-L-A-N-D, Ireland. Anyway. And then there's another picture here of family seats of the gentry in modern Wirral. Um, Wallacey Mells. 
uppercase fans and lowercase fans seats. Okay. Uh, there are 12 unidentified names which resemble place names. Oh, I've read that on there. Wirral was not... Wirral was not an insular or an isolated... or as isolated during this pre-industrial era as many of us have liked to suppose. We have overestimated the ability of the two great rivers and the Irish Sea to keep people out and underestimated both the desire and the ability of people to travel away from home and to settle elsewhere. Many of the immigrants came from villages located in counties which are not even coterminous with Cheshire. At distances from Will, which would have necessitated many days travel, either on foot or on horseback. We will probably never know how or why each family made such moves. Some people came from semi-foreign countries, Ireland and Wales, with their distinctive language and cultures, but most incomers originated from Cheshire and Lancashire. Surprisingly, far more came from the latter country, county, than the former. This has implications for the social and cultural history of Wirral. Wirral was administratively and politically a part of Cheshire, but perhaps socially and culturally, in the minds of many people, especially at the northern end of the peninsula, it had more in common with South Lancashire. The reasons for this partnership might, in fact, lie in pre-conquest times, when the Norsemen conquered Wirral and Lancashire. A glance at settlement names in the area just north of Liverpool shows a similar proportion of Norse names to that which can be found in Will. Medieval Lancashire might medieval Lancashire people might have felt inclined to move to Will because of ancient kinship ties. Of course, the two districts are not far apart. It is simply the River Mersey which acts as a barrier between them. Compare the relationship with that between Will and the rest of Cheshire. Therefore, there is no physical boundary equal to that which the River Mersey presents. But it would appear that the number of immigrants from the villages of the Cheshire Plain was much smaller, possibly because the kinship ties were not as strong. This cultural and genetic explanation for the migration of, of Lancastrians into Wibble does not, however, take into any account of the motivations behind our proposed population movement. Perhaps there was more of an economic need to move out of Lancashire to pastures new than there were there was to move away from the Cheshire Plain. The latter might have been either less overcrowded or more prosperous than the former during the Middle Ages, creating less of a need for immigration. It is also possible that the Black Death of the middle of the 14th century so denuded the population of Wirral that Lancashire peasants were tempted by high wages to move in in to revive the economy. Perhaps between the 14th and 16th centuries, Wirral offered better economic prospects. Do any of the other documents from the 16th and early 17th centuries reveal current or thriving relationships between the people of Wirral and South Lancashire? Wirral Notes and Queries contains transcriptions of 16 wills made by people from North Wirral at this time. They contain references to many people who were not only the Testators families, sorry, testators family and friends, but also debtors and creditors. Lands and properties are also described. Despite the frequency of Lancashire names amongst the testators, there are only two references to any personal, family, or business connections with Lancashire. 
Thomas Molyneux bequeathed his ambling nag and a colt named Wiley to his cousin John Molyneux, Molyneux of Melling and William Fells refers to his lands in Liverpool. Amongst the many other human connections, the testators mention there were only two people who did not reside in Will. Mr Pemberton of the city of Chester, who received Margaret Harrison's nag, and Mr Edward Vaudry of the Riddings in Tim Timperley, Cheshire, who was to act as Jane Penkiff's overseer. We do not conclude that the society and economy of Will were intimately involved with those of Lancashire any more than they were the rest of Cheshire. Rather, we gain the impression that Wibble, especially at the northern end, was, in a current day-to-day -day sense, quite self-contained and distinctive. Many residents had ancestral roots in Lancashire and elsewhere, but they were fundamentally Wirrellans. By this stage, they had probably ceased to be interested in heritage, which their surnames implied. Indeed, we could say that, their na that names like Linacre, Pemberton, and Ermston were typical and quintessential Wirral names of the period. Table 10 lists the most common Wirral surnames of 1545. So, uh, rank 1, name Robinson or Robins, Robinson, so, or Ro Robinson. Um, number of heads of households for each was 19. Townships in which they were found in 1545 was Brimstage, Burton, Leighton, Liscard, Morton, Oxton, Prenton, Poulton, Seacombe, Ravy, Sorgal Massey, Shotwick, Chanmere, Upton and Wallasey. And the second one was Smith. Um, smell. The Robinson was like Robin and then S-O-N and there was another one as like Rogue like and then N-S-O-N and then Smith as an S-N- Y-T-H-E, and then the one we know, S-M-I-T-H. And that had 17 heads of Smith had 17 heads of households for each. And that was in Landerkin, Liscard, Puddington, Sorgal Massey, Little Stanny, and West Kirby. Number three, Bennett. That had 16. And that was Barnston, Ness, Great Neston, Newton Cum Larton, Puddington, Raby, Sorgal Massey and Will Aston. Then number four, Pem Pemberton. I had 12. That was Little Cowley, Liscard, Morton, Prenton, Sorgal Massey, Fingwall and Upton. And number five, Coke or Cock. Uh, well, C-O-K-E or C-O-K. And I had nine. And that was Lower Bevington, Chawton, Easton, Bollington, Banistry, Banistry, yeah. Ness, Shotwick, Thornton, Hugh. And um, we've got Sherlock, Goodacre, John uh, Hill, H Y L L, Johnson, Williamson, Bird, Hancock, Hickok, Home, Linacre, Taylor, Barrow, Brusco, Bursco, Coventry, Denison, Deason, Coventry spelled C-O-V-E-N-T-R-E, Denison, Deanson, Gill, or Guile, G-Y-L-L, or G-Y-L-E, and then Lay, or Lee, 
L-E-Y or L-E-A. So Smith has always been a common surname in England. Robinson is popular in the north of England. Bennett, although more common in the north than in the south, is a strong rural name. It's interesting to note certain other names which have remained strong in the peninsula. Bird and Sherlock, the reader will notice their frequency in subsequent chapters of this book. To summarise the above discussion, the subsidiary roles have revealed that Wirral's population was still tiny comparison with what it was to become after the Industrial Revolution. It was shown that during the period 1300 to 1500, there must have been considerable migration into the peninsula and that more people came from Lancashire than anywhere else, even from Cheshire. This might have affected the culture and economy of Wirral. But in fact, other evidence shows that by the 16th century, Wirral was quite self-contained. The Mersey had not made it as demographically isolated. Yeah, the Mersey had not made it as democratically uh, isolated as was once thought, but Wirral's identity was unique. It was neither a simple extension of Cheshire nor of Lancashire. Certain names were common and typically Wirralan. And that's the end. Uh, we've got a picture here of the geographical origins of Will's surnames. So there you go. So, I will stop there. Well done if you managed to get through all that, because I've got a bit stuttery there, because I'm getting a bit particular with the place names and names. And the Old English, well, not getting the Old English. Anyway, so, hope you join me for the next part, part three, Confessing with Holy David and Religion. Mm. Okay.